Have you ever felt like you messed up something so badly that you can never straighten it out? I mean, has that ever, has that ever happened in your life? Or have you ever uh, done something so hurtful to somebody that you feel like you can never be forgiven? I think Peter must have been asking those types of questions of his own heart after denying that he even knew Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was arrested. Could Peter be forgiven for such a blatant betrayal? And if he could be forgiven, would he still qualify to do kingdom work? Simon Peter has to be one of the most interesting characters in all of Scripture, right? We've talked about him so many times in this preaching series about how he's loved by all of us because why? Because we all have a little Simon Peter in us, if we're being honest. He overestimates his own strength. He underestimates the power of temptation. And he thinks he's more committed to his convictions than he actually is. But by the time we get to today's chapter, the last chapter, John chapter 21, we see Peter being a new man. He is a man who is broken over his sin. He is a man who is humbled by his failures. And now we see a man who desperately is seeking to be in the presence of the, of the Lord and to know that he still has a place in the gospel mission, in the building of the church. And that's what today's passage covers. This is Peter's public restoration and the recommissioning of him to ministry in Christ's church. And despite his failures, God's grace is going to abound in Peter's life, which, again, is really great news for those of us who recognize a little bit of Simon Peter in us. God's grace abounds. Not only will Peter have a place in the gospel mission, but God is going to use this impatient, impulsive man in a huge way. He's going to use him precisely because of what he went through and precisely because of the lessons that he learned from it. Now, a quick word, a warning before we jump in. We're about to read this story, but it is not just for Peter. And it is not just for those who, like Peter, are called to church leadership. Today's text is a call to faithfulness for every single believer, for anyone who loves the Lord and has a desire to serve his people. And what Jesus is about to show Peter and what he's about to bring out in him Jesus wants from every single Christian in this room today. So don't check out on me, okay? Grab your Bibles. If you're not there already, let's go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We have just today and two more Sundays left in the study of John. Can you believe that? I'll figure out by, by the time we're done how long we've been in John, but it's been, it's been, it's been a few minutes. So we want to savor uh, these last passages and savor our time in the gospel. This morning, we're only looking at three verses, as you see on the screen, but they are incredibly rich verses. Very simple, but very rich and very important. And for every man who has ever served in the church as a, a pastor or an elder, I can tell you that this passage in particular is very personal to us. Because it brings out so much of the emotion that you invest as an elder. You invest in kingdom work 
when you answer the call to serve. And I can tell you that I've been waiting for this passage for a long time, excited that it was, it's finally here this morning. I finally get to talk about this amazing story. Okay, so who remembers where we finished last week? Remember the disciples had been in Judea, then they traveled north up to Galilee where they were told that they should go. They were told that Jesus was going to go before them, that the risen Christ would appear to them at some place, some designated mountain, that's what he said. And for whatever reason, good or bad, we talked about that last Sunday, they didn't go to the mountain, they went fishing. Led by Peter, seven of the guys said, let's go fishing. But after a very frustrating night of catching how much fish? None. In the morning, that professional fisherman catching no fish. Amazing, right? In the morning, Jesus mysteriously and suddenly appears on the shore about a, a hundred miles from their boat, and he shouts to them that they should what? Cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Give that side of the boat another shot, right? Professional fishermen going, oh, like the fish know where we put our nets, right? But they do. Reluctantly, they do because maybe this, this guy on the shore has, knows something that we don't know. And what happens? They bring in this massive haul of fish. And John, of all people, sitting in the boat, amazed at what he's seeing, suddenly looks at the shore, sees the guy, and what does he say? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And at that moment, you can picture Peter, right? Peter stops what he's doing. He processes what John has just said. He looks at John. He looks at the guy in the shore, and he grabs his outer garment, throws it on, and he plunges into the lake to swim to shore, desperate to be with Jesus. And what a picture. We talked about it last night. What a picture of the love and the passion and the devotion of a disciple of Jesus Christ that, that we're not going to wait to get to his presence. We are going to jump into that lake and get to him as fast as we possibly can. And then as the other six disciples pull the boat in, they see and they smell that Jesus has made them a supernatural, miraculous breakfast. Made up of what? Loaves and fishes, of course, right? It all fits together and comes around full circle. So he makes his breakfast. That sets us up for our text this morning. Now look at the first part of verse 15, just the first phrase. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, and now let your eyes drop down to the first part of verse 20, it says, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So here's, here's the picture we're given, what this might look like. Breakfast is over. I don't know who did the dishes. I don't know. But breakfast has ended, and Jesus gets up, and he starts to walk down the shoreline, and Peter is right there. He's not going to be separated from the Lord, walking alongside of him. And then the rest of the guys, they follow, but close behind, and likely John is able to hear this conversation that is taking place. So picture this shoreline. I'm going to give you pictures in just a second. Where did this take place? This is my last chance to give you a map in the study of John. My last opportunity to show you pictures of Israel, places we're going to be in November. So get excited before we wrap up this series. So where did this take place? There is a pretty strong tradition dating back to the second century that identifies the location of where the disciples went fishing and where Jesus made them breakfast on the shore. It's located in a place, some of you have been there before, called Tabga. Now, I'm going to give you a map. Here we go. Sea of Galilee, right? Tabga is that red dot that you see on the map. The northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, near the base of the Mount of Beatitudes, the blue triangle there. That is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And it's only about two miles south of Capernaum, 
which is the green dot there, which of course served as the, the central hub of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So look how concentrated these things are in this one place. In Hebrew, this spot is known as En Shava, which means seven springs. In Greek, it was called Heptapagon, which again means seven springs. But because the town for a long time was occupied by Arab Muslims, the Arabic name is what stuck to it, and it's called Tabga, which is a really hard thing to say, Tabga. Now, there's archaeological evidence that a small chapel was built there on the shore way back in the 4th century, and then more evidence that that small chapel was at some point expanded into a Byzantine church and a monastery sometime in the 5th century, but then when the Muslim invasion of the 7th century came, it was all destroyed, and basically this area lay dormant for many, many years, 1,600 years, until the 1930s. The 1930s, archaeologists began to survey this part of the land because they recognized the local traditions that this may be the spot. And they started digging, and they found the original mosaic floors that date back to the 5th century. So I'll give you some pictures. What happened then was the Catholic Church realized this was a very important spot. They purchased the land, and they began in 1984 to restore the Byzantine church to its footprint and to its style. So when you go into that church today, it looks like that. It is a gorgeous church uh, right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when you walk up to that altar, you see this original mosaic floor of what? Fishes and loaves that date back to the 5th century. Beautiful, beautiful mosaic floors. Lay under layers and layers of dirt and silt for 1,600 years until it was discovered in the 20th century. Now, to give you an idea of what the shoreline looked like, here's an aerial of this entire area. You see the Mount of Beatitudes there. That's likely where the Sermon on the Mount was preached from. You see on the shoreline there, that's where Jesus would have made them breakfast. And that yellow square is the restored church that sits right off the shore. So you can again see what this looks like. Now, is there a good reason to believe that this is the right spot? Yeah, there is actually a number of things. First of all, there's the stories from the locals that had hung around for generations. And then you see early on in the Christian period, multiple churches being built on that spot. And then you have experts that know something about fishing. And they will tell you that Tabga is the perfect spot, probably one of the best places to fish in the Sea of Galilee. First of all, it's located near Capernaum which every historian will tell you was the busiest fishing village of the first century. That's where fish were processed. That's where they were sold in the market. But more importantly, from a strategic perspective, this area is known as Seven Springs. Seven springs that flow into the lake right here at Tabga, warm sulfur springs that, that draw the fish into that region. So it's easy, this is what we call easy fishing right there in Tabga. And of course, the disciples who've been fishermen in this region all their lives, they would have known that. By the way, this is also, there's a, a good tradition that this is the same stretch of shoreline where Jesus first called Peter and Andrew and James and John. That It's amazing how much of the Lord's ministry took place in this very small condensed area in the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, thanks for indulging me on that. Let's... <laughs> Let's look at our verses for today. I just want to let, set the tone to give you some images, right? Does it help you guys? Okay. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse's like, don't apologize. That's fine. All right. Let's read our verses for this morning. Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. Then he, Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He, Peter, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, it says, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he, Peter, said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So what I want to do is bring up on the screen just a, just a very simple layout. Whoops, oh, sorry, shoreline. Got, got you to ground level. Okay, we'll be there later. Okay, let's lay this out. Just so we can make it really simple and really clear, right? What the, what the conversation looks like. Jesus' words in yellow, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. So I'm going to leave that up there as we walk through some of this stuff. Now listen, I've heard so many preachers and teachers go through this passage. And every time I listen to it, I get really frustrated. And here's why. Because they tend to get lost in the nuances of all the language here. And in my opinion, they end up missing the forest for the trees. Yes, it's true that when John recounts this conversation in the Greek language, he uses two very specific words for love, agapeo and phileo. He does use back and forth. But here's the thing. And, and again, this is so often what gets focused on. But this is actually pretty normal for the way John writes. He does use words interchangeably. In fact, throughout this gospel, we haven't pointed it out every time, he has used those two different forms of the word love interchangeably in many places in his gospel. So it's not unique to this section in chapter 21. And then just to go a step further, he, he uses stylistic, stylistic variations on more than just the word love in this passage alone, right? He uses two interchangeable words for tend and shepherd. He uses two similar words for lambs and sheep, and he even uses two interchangeable words for the word no in verse 17 alone. This is part of John's style. So what I don't want to do today is get lost in all the speculation that, look, if you buy a commentary on this, you'll see pages and pages of speculation as to why John did this, as if we can get into his head, right? But the very plain and big picture of what you see on the screen is what truly matters, right? And the message is simple, right? Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Good. Now go take care of my people. We could pray and go home now. It's that simple, but it's incredibly profound. And it has application for every person in this room, that very simple message. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, let's not forget the background. Before this conversation, what had taken place, Mark, the gospel writer Mark, in his gospel, gives us a little detail, and I didn't cover it before because I was saving it till today, and it's something you've probably read, but read right past. When Mark describes the angel speaking to the women at the empty tomb, listen to what he records. He says, the angel said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Now listen to this. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So picture this now. The women come back and they give testimony to what the angel said. And Peter's like, wait, hold on a second. Back up. 
Did he say, and Peter? Did he mention me specifically? Because remember what Peter's just done. He's denied the Lord three times. But wait, the angel mentioned my name? What would that have told him? That clearly Jesus wants to assure him that he's not rejected. In fact, Jesus wants to make sure that they have a discussion in Galilee. This would have been a great joy to Peter's heart. But then on that same day, before anybody leaves for Galilee, Luke tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter alone, privately. We're not given any detail on that, other than Paul confirms that it took place. Paul has this great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He mentions that the Lord appeared to Cephas or to Peter. But here's the key. That meeting, which we don't have details on, it no doubt included Jesus forgiving Peter, but it was private. It took place just the two of them. So what we see here in John chapter 20 is, 21 is very important in the sense that it is done publicly. This is a public restoration done intentionally in the presence of the other disciples. So, so Peter gets a double blessing here, right? A private meeting with Jesus and now a public restoration. But here's the thing you have to notice. Just before you say, well, Peter, that, how blessed he is, hold on a second, you need to see in this text that this public restoration was by no means pain-free. By no means was this pain-free. And you see this in verse 17, where John reports that Peter was what? He was grieved by this. He's grieved by this. That the Lord had to walk him through this process. That the Lord had to ask Peter three times to confirm his love. The fact is, guys, nobody enjoys having their sins put before them. Nobody enjoys that. Nobody enjoys having to own their sin in front of other people. It can be a painful experience. I'm sure Peter wished that that whole denial thing could just be swept under the rug and never spoken of again. Or at the very least, maybe Jesus asked him one time, do you love me? And then I can answer that question and we can all move on. But from the Lord's perspective, this was a necessary part of the process. And not just for Peter, but for all the disciples to hear this, right? All the disciples on the shore that day needed to learn this lesson. They needed to hear Peter confess three times for each of his denials. See, this was not one of those times for a quickie confession and just move on. We all love that, by the way. Do we not? We sin grievously. We betray the Lord here or there, and we just want to do a quickie confession and move on. Sorry, Lord. Sorry, Lord. Just throw it up there and then try to move on as quickly and painlessly as possible. But it won't do for Peter. In light of what lay ahead for him, all that he needs to do in terms of leadership and service for the kingdom, he needed to feel the weight of that grief. He needed to feel it. Because nobody who shrugs off sin is no big deal can properly lead others in Christ's church. Leaders cannot shrug it off like, ah, no big deal. They need to feel this grief. You cannot say that you love Jesus if, you're, if you treat your sin and if you look at the awful price that Jesus paid for your sin casually, as if it doesn't matter. So Simon Peter needed to walk through this pain one more time in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of his friends. Now, the one interesting phrase among Jesus' three questions is what you see there in verse 15 where he says, more than these. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by that? Well, for a long time, scholars have put forth a number of theories. Some people think he was referring to Peter's livelihood. Peter, do you, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Will you turn away from fishing and truly follow me? And that's possible. I've seen some good arguments for that considering the context. But I think, my opinion, is that Jesus has something else in mind. I think he's referring to the men who are following him on the seashore that day. And if so, it relates back to something that happened in the upper room. Do you remember when Jesus announced to his friends at the upper room in this very tense moment, he said, guys, you're all going to fall away this night. Every single one of you. The shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. You will all fall away. And remember what Peter did? He strenuously objected, right? right? He objected to it. Even if all these other guys fall away, Lord, I will not, as he thumped his chest. I will not fall away. I am ready to die for you, Lord, he said that night. And so in this impulsive moment of pride, Peter's in this headspace where he really does think that he's a notch above all the other disciples in terms of commitment, right? He's more committed to them than them. He alone is strong enough to deal with the storm that's coming in his own fortitude and strength. And he's ready. And he's pumping his chest like I'm the man, right? But what a fall. What a fall. And what a lesson for us. This is straight out of Proverbs, right? Pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Peter lived it. He lived it. And now, a few weeks have gone by, he's had time to reflect and to feel the weight of that failure. And so what Jesus is saying here in verse 15 is this, Simon, would you like to reevaluate now your claim that you made that night? Given the, the time you've had to reflect, would you like to take a second look at this? Would you like to withdraw your estimation of your own strength? Painful. Would this not have been painful? I mean, for any, for any of us, and we all do this, right? We have a certain level of ego. We think we're godly. We think we're this. We think we're that. We've got it together. At least we're giving off that image that we're squared away, whatever. This is so, this is so in your face, right at the ego of Peter. Do you want to reevaluate what you said that night? So even though it's painful... Understand, Jesus is not trying to humiliate him. He's not trying to rub it in his face. Quite the opposite. In forcing Peter to recall his own words and to repent of that pride, listen to me now, Jesus has given Peter a great gift. And this is what we often don't see when we sin and we have to face it, that it's a gift. It's a teachable moment. This is a priceless teaching moment that Jesus gave to Peter and he would never forget it. Never. And listen, I know this feeling personally. Some of you do too. Times when I've had such painful moments in my ministry career. Times when I've made mistakes. Times when I've not shown good judgment in situations. And it came back to bite me. Every pastor has had these moments. Every single one of us. It's a rite of passage, I think, in the ministry field to make these mistakes and to, to feel the weight of that and then to have to own that. But then as you move forward in your ministry career and you look back on those failures, what do you say? You're like, it's hard, but thank you, Lord, 
thank you for that. It was a gift to me because that's part of my path in becoming a better shepherd, a path towards being better equipped for kingdom work, towards greater spiritual growth in my own walk with the Lord. It's a gift. And so, friends, we can all learn a lesson from this. Talking about our sins and owning our mistakes is never easy, but it is a necessary step on the path to healing and to sanctification. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with somebody in the church, somebody that I love as a shepherd, and I've said, all right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this sin. How did this happen? And they don't want to do it. It's too painful. And they don't want to own it. And so they'll deflect. And they'll minimize. Ah, it's not that bad. Or they'll make excuses for their sin. Or they'll blame somebody else. Or they'll put up a defensive shield so that you can't see past it. All to prop up a, a false image so that people respect me, think I'm godly. Defensiveness. But I want to say to those who are tempted to do that, look at Peter here. Look at his example. That doesn't get you anywhere. That, that defensive measure that I don't want to deal with or I want to sweep it under the carpet, it doesn't get you in it. First of all, you cannot fool the Lord. So you think you're hiding, but you cannot. Second, you're preventing others from truly knowing you and helping you. And third, you're stunting your own spiritual growth. So this is important. Notice, notice Peter. How does he respond to Jesus on the shore here? His response is humble. There's not an ounce of defensiveness in Peter's response. He's owned all of it. He's owned all of it. Doesn't try to rationalize his denial. Well, you know, Lord, I was under a lot of pressure that night, and there, you know, it was cold, and you know, a lot of soldiers around. No rationalization, no defensiveness. He doesn't try to deflect in any way. He simply says, "What? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. That's it." And as simple as that sounds, that, that is the core of this entire passage, the word love. This is the great test for all of us. What do you love? Who do you love? Notice Jesus didn't ask Peter, Peter, are you sorry for sinning? Notice he didn't ask, do you promise never to do it again? He didn't ask Peter, are you prepared to do good works to make up for what you've done? The question was so simple and to the heart of the matter. Do you love me? Do you love me? That's, that's always the heart of the matter. Do you love the Lord? See, the Lord knows his followers are always going to fall short of his glory. He wrote it in his word. You're going to fall short. He knows you are going to stumble at times. He knows you are going to sin. But he still asks, asks the question, do you love me? Are we like David, a man who sinned greatly, but is still called a man after God's own heart? Raise your hand if you've wondered how that can be. How can that be? Read the Psalms and you'll see. Read the Psalms and you will see why, despite his great sin, this can be said of David. How he opened up his entire life and his heart for God to examine how he owned his sins, how he accepted God's justice in disciplining him, how David wept in repentance over his sin, how even after his failures, he maintained this unrelenting faith 
how he maintained a passion for doing God's will. In spite of his great sin, he could commit adultery, even arrange for a murder, and still say with Peter, Lord, you know that I love you. And it's true of him. And it's true of him. That's big news, isn't it, for those of us who sin? It's really big news. I think every Christian can find himself or herself making that similar statement. I do this all the time. (laughs) I do this all the time. Even though in my own walk, I fall so short of what I want to be in Christ. All the time, I go to the Lord in prayer and I say, Lord, you know I love you. You know that, right? I know that my life doesn't always demonstrate it as much as it should, but Jesus, you know all things and you know the depths of my heart. You know my loyalties. You know my convictions and my deepest longings. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Have you had that conversation with God? Have you had that conversation with God? It's important. It's something he wants to have with you. Is David's story and Peter's story an encouragement to you? Does it not bring you comfort to know that when we fail, even if we betray him, he still knows our hearts are for him? To know that God's mercies for us are new every morning, that we can be restored again, to feel a sense of his grace and acceptance, to know that we can get up from our sin, we can repent, confess, and move forward in serving him with a clean conscience. This is the beauty of the cross, is it not? That it's finished? But how many of us let it weigh us down? This is what an authentic Christian walk looks like. Believe it or not, I know we say, well, Peter's betrayals are so severe. I get that. But this is what an authentic Christian walk looks like. Trusting that when we come to Christ in repentance, that means no excuses, no rationalizations, no blaming others. We can know that our sins are paid for, that they're buried in the deepest part of the sea, that they're remembered no more, and that our calling to serve him and others in the body has not been nullified. That's good news. And guys, I hate to do this, but actually I don't hate to do this. This is the story of so many great saints from the past that we admire so much. Do you not realize that men like Athanasius and Augustine and Luther and Calvin had great sin in their life? They did. From a distance, it's so easy for us to look at these giants of the faith and say, oh, God did such great work through them. And he did. But they were still men with great sin. Fact is, grace abounded for them in their lives. It abounds for us today. And despite our sins, God is pleased to accomplish great things through those of us who will just admit our weakness, (laughs) admit that we cannot do anything apart from Christ, And come clean about our failures and say, Lord, I still love you. I love you. You know I love you. That's always going to be the question. In all the ups and downs and the trials and temptations and the victories and the losses, the question is always going to come back to, do you love me? Now, how can we be sure that we love God? Glad you asked. Because guess who gives us the most information in the New Testament about loving God? John. 
It's all over his first epistle, right? In fact, 26 times in 1 John, he speaks of love. And I'm just going to quickly summarize four categories of things that will tell you if you love God from the letter of 1 John. Are you ready? Number one. Oh, there, there we go. The one who does not love the world or the things of the world loves God. That just means the disposition of his or her heart is consistently set on things above and not on the pleasures of this world. Doesn't mean you can't go to work tomorrow. The disposition of your heart is set on things above and not on the pleasures of the world. The person who loves God does not love the world or the things of the world. That's number one. Number two, the one who keeps God's word and obeys his commandments loves God. He or she is actively striving by the power of the Spirit to be conformed to the image of Christ, seeking to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Will we do it perfectly? No. But always seeking to keep his commandments. If so, you love God. Number three, the one who loves his brother and sister in the body of Christ. That means loving practically, not just in word, but in deed, regarding their needs. Everybody's need around you is more important than your own. Practical love. And number four, the one who abides in God and God abides in him. So this is a reference to our union with Christ, our fellowship with Christ. It means dwelling with him all day, every day, and making his will the preeminent driving force in your life because you abide with him. You make your dwelling with him every single day. So the test is actually pretty simple. Is your heart in line with those four things? If Jesus says, do you love me? Here's four things to review that will give you a good answer. You will fail at times, folks. You will stumble. You will sin. That's never been the question. The question is, do you truly love Jesus? The answer to the question is going to show up in your life. In fact, it's already here today, ready for examination. All of us. And this is something we should do regularly. Examine your life. Because listen, we worship what we love. Right? We serve what we love. We sacrifice for what we love. We follow what we love. We imitate what we love. We obey what we love. So examine your heart. It's good and healthy to do that, right? To take the Peter test, do I love Jesus? Take the David test. Am I a person after God's own heart? If not, if, if this is a struggle, you're looking at this and going, woo, uh-oh, Today is the day to get up, confess sin, start loving God, because his mercies are new every morning. This is, the, this is the amazing and wonderful thing about the Christian faith, is it not? I've heard people say this in regard to communion. They're like, well, I came to communion and I had sin in my life, so I didn't take communion. Really? Have you forgotten what the Bible says about confessing your sins and being cleansed of all unrighteousness in a moment? because you're found in Christ, because the work was done on the cross, because it's finished, the blood is shed. We can get up and we can love God today, right away, right away. So for Peter, 
Jesus did know that his love was real. Peter really did love Jesus. So what did the Lord tell him to do then? Okay, good. Job, Peter. I agree. You love me. Now go and serve others. Show it. Don't talk, don't just talk about it. Show it. Go and love others. Tend my lambs and shepherd my sheep. Now, what do you mean by that? I'm just gonna put up a picture of a shepherd and sheep. This is one of the most common metaphors in the Bible, is it not? And I love how even this November, when we go to Israel, we will see shepherds and sheep on the hills of Bethlehem. They're still there. It's this beautiful metaphor, right? Because you guys and me, collectively, we are, we're sheep. We are the flock of God. And Christ is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and the one shepherd. And as Christ cares for his flock of believers, he appoints men like Peter in every local church to serve as shepherds also. Shepherds that operate under his authority. They do not rule on their own merits. They do not rule according to their own desires. They serve as under-shepherds under the chief shepherd. This is how God has designed his church. And the tasks given to those under-shepherds come out of the culture of the Middle East. So you've got to understand this. In that part of the world, even today, herds of animals have to survive and thrive in a very harsh environment. And so they count on their shepherds for life. The shepherd has to make sure that the flock is fed and cared for and guided and protected. Otherwise, they're going to die. This is the picture we're given. So the shepherds have to lead them to the right place where they can feed, take them to places of refreshment where they can drink, and the good shepherd has to know where those places are. He has to know that. So that at the end of the day, the flock can lay its head down on the ground and rest in peace because they're cared for because they know that the shepherd has their best interests at heart. And that's the whole picture of how God designed his church to operate. It's very simple. This is what local church shepherds are called to do, to tend or to feed the sheep, to shepherd or to govern the sheep. And by the way, from a language standpoint, both verbs in that statement that that Jesus makes are written in what we call the present imperative form. What that means is shepherds don't get to do this occasionally. The job isn't to occasionally think of the sheep. It's a continuous action. The shepherds have to continually care for and feed the sheep. Otherwise, they die. So it's to be always on the mind of an under-shepherd. It's the focus of all that he does. So based on that, what are the primary tasks for shepherds today in the church? The first thing is feeding the sheep. The flock needs to be fed a continuous diet of God's word. And that's why when you open up the Bible, especially the pastoral epistles, you see all this very sharp language that instructs us very clearly what we're supposed to be about. Let me give you some of the phrases. Hold fast to the faithful word. Exhort in sound doctrine. Refute those who contradict. Exhort and correct with all authority. Be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Accurately handle the word of truth. Preach the word, correct, rebuke, and exhort the sheep. And that's just a small sampling. How can you tell if your elders love you if they do those things? If they do those things. If your elders themselves strive to pursue and hold to sound doctrine 
And if they feed you the word of God, they love you. If they, this is a hard one, if they rebuke you, they love you. If they correct you, they love you. If they exhort you to godliness, if they encourage you in the use of your gifts and talents, if they challenge you to turn from sin, they love you. If they nudge you towards dying to self and serving others, your shepherds love you. And I know it doesn't always feel that way because you're like, I don't want to hear it from you. I'm not interested in being rebuked or corrected. Peter, I've got it together. Look at me. Look how good I look. No, the shepherds love you when they do these things. This is why here at Oak Hill, we work so hard at preaching and teaching, why we take it so seriously, not just on Sundays, but during the week in our community groups, making sure our teaching is sound in our podcasts that we do, in our, our, our video podcasts, feeding you constantly principles from God's word so that you can live out your faith, both doctrinally and practically. But then there's more to a shepherd's job than just feeding. How many of you guys know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? known as one of the greatest preachers of all time. You know what he said once? He said, to love to preach is one thing, to love those to whom we preach is quite another. Ouch, right? So we can't just teach and preach and walk away. There's far more to it. To tend and to shepherd involves oversight. It involves care. It involves counseling and protecting. All for the purpose of nourishing the souls of the sheep. To, to go to our sheep or in our pasture and to move them along towards the fullness of spiritual maturity. That is our job. And in the process of that, our hope is that you guys can lay your heads down in peace, knowing that you're in process, that you're growing, and you're never alone because you have shepherds that love you. That's the goal. Now, it's important to see the personal pronouns that Jesus uses here when he instructs Peter. He says, tend whose lambs and whose sheep? He says, mine. The sheep always belong to Jesus, not to Peter, not to me, not to any of our elders. You all are Jesus' sheep, first and foremost. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me. I know them. They listen to my voice. They follow me, and I lead them out. But now what you need to see here is that, that, that in light of that, Jesus now looks Peter, and I picture him looking him square in the eyes, and he says, Simon, I'm now handing you my sheep. This is a big deal. I'm entrusting you with their very souls. So I need to know that you love me more than anything else. I need to know that you'll act in my place for their good, even laying down your life if necessary. Simon, take care of my sheep. It's the burden and the responsibility for every shepherd in Christ's church. It's heavy. It's emotional. It's draining. But it's an amazing joy to be able to serve as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. Now, having shared all that, let me address another question to this beautiful flock of sheep before me. You guys look good this morning. I don't smell sheep at all. This is awesome. You look great. All cleaned up. Are you joyfully willing to be shepherded? This is your responsibility. Are you joyfully willing to be shepherded? Think about that carefully because there's a lot of people in the kingdom today, churchgoers, who are not willing. 
not understanding the purpose of the church, not wanting to submit to the authority structure that Christ has established. There are too many churchgoers today who do not feel obligated to respect or to follow the shepherds of their church. And they're in grievous error. Biblically, each sheep and each local pastor has the duty, the biblical duty to joyfully receive the care of their shepherds. And although the elders in every church are imperfect men, by their calling and through the way they serve and their leadership, the sheep is actually receiving the ministry of Christ himself through those men, as imperfect as they are. That's how God designed his church. So it's so important to recognize that we are not the flock of God in just a general abstract way here at Oak Hill. We are a particular group of sheep in a particular church body with a particular group of shepherds. And by joining this local church and covenant membership, your calling is to willingly welcome your shepherds into your lives. Why? Because they love you. Because they care for you. Because they want to help you. Just as Jesus helped Peter back in the day to tend and to shepherd you in your walk with him. So questions. Do you allow yourself to be known by your shepherds? As we're striving, the seven of us, to, to know you, are you opening up your lives so the shepherds can know you? Are you being transparent with us so that we can know about the concerns of your soul? Do you joyfully receive nourishment from our teaching? Are you eagerly seeking out the wisdom of this group of men? Do you follow their guidance when they give you counsel and advice? Do you follow it as they teach you from the word? Do you support them as they make decisions about the life of the church? Do you gladly place yourself under the protection of your shepherds, taking seriously their warnings about sin? That's your responsibility. There's, listen, there's two great passages that speak to this, and they're both in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 7 says this, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And the implication there is, is that your shepherds are, they're finite men. They're imperfect men. They need your prayers. They need your support. They need your encouragement. Remember them, it says. And then in verse 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. Right? As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Why? Because that would be unprofitable for you. It's a beautiful passage. When the sheep are doing their part with joy and they're not grumbling, the task of shepherding becomes a delight to us rather than a burden. And as the shepherds are blessed in their role, they become a blessing to the flock. And that blessing is then a blessing to you. And it all comes full circle when we work together in that way. So listen, no matter how ordinary your shepherds may seem, the Bible tells us that the men that Christ has put as shepherds in this church are a gift to you, a gift to your life, a gift to this body. And we will give an account someday for the shepherding that we've done. You'll give an account too. For what? For how you follow and submit. Because that's the biblical mandate. Okay, last thing. You may be thinking, whew, dodged a bullet here. I, don't, I never have to be a pastor or an elder. Good luck with that, Jeff. That's your job, not mine. Not going to be me. Not so fast. Not so fast. Let me close with this exhortation. Granted, elders are at the forefront of shepherding. But listen, even at a church of our size, we cannot possibly do it alone. 
We can't. And this is where the one another passages in the New Testament instruct all of us here to tend and to shepherd in support of the elder team. Here's what that means. Older believers should be tending to younger believers. Older believers should be tending to younger believers. Those who are more mature in the faith should be discipling those who are newer in the faith. That's shepherding. Husbands should be shepherding their families. Moms should be teaching their children. If you love Jesus, you have something to contribute to the lives of somebody else in this body. We all need to tend. We all need to shepherd. And here at Oak Hill, we commit to doing this in our membership covenant. For for a lot of you, this, this language is going to sound very familiar. Listen to all of this. We strive for unity in all things, exhorting one another to practice forgiveness. So if there's a grudge in the body, we don't just call an elder and say, hey, get this fixed. We do it. We exhort one another to practice forgiveness. We exhort one another to pursue reconciliation when there is a break in fellowship. We exhort one another not to gossip in the body. That's tending and shepherding one another. We strive to walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another's lives. And when necessary, we faithfully admonish each other. Again, we don't just call an elder and say, hey, so-and-so is sinning, go fix it. (laughs) We say, no, I'm going to enter into that relationship and say, brother or sister, this sin is is not good. How can I help? Because I love you. We practice the simple idea of being present with our church family. We delight in one another's joy. And we endeavor with tenderness and empathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. We push each other not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. We consistently lift each other up in prayer. This is all tending to the life of the body, tending to each other. We seek to constantly disciple one another. And by a pure and loving example, model a Christian walk for others in the body. These are the commitments we've made to each other here at Oak Hill. This is how we live life together. We tend and we shepherd in support of the mission that God has given to our elder team. Amen? So let me wrap up. For all of you who have a little Simon Peter in you, two questions. Can you be forgiven? Yes. Do you still qualify for kingdom work? Absolutely. Absolutely. But don't forget the key question that stands above all of the others. And I want you to hear Jesus' voice. I want you to put yourself in those sandals on the shore of Tabgah as Jesus looks into your eyes and says, hey, do you love me?